Well, our text for tonight is Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. There was a study completed just this past year. It's a very interesting study, and it sampled 2,000 households, just over 2,000 households, who are conservatively evangelical, that verifiably believe the doctrines of grace. And this study found that only 41% of them disagree that the Christian church has completely replaced Israel. In other words, 41% fully believe in a coming, restored, national Israel that has turned to Christ. And this impacts attitudes even today. Those who disagree that the church has replaced Israel are more likely to agree in the permanent land promises uh, given to Abraham in Genesis. Those who disagree that the church has replaced Israel are more likely also to agree that Christians should support the right of Jewish people to live in a sovereign state. 92% of them said that Jews should have the right to a sovereign state, to their own country. But interestingly, almost as many people who do believe that the church has replaced Israel, they also think that Jews have the right to live in a sovereign state, 82% of them, meaning that when it comes to taking the theological theory that God is done with Israel as a nation, that Israel is finished, that God's never going to have a, a saved nation of Israel anymore. When it takes, comes to taking that theory and actually applying it to reality, most of them don't want to actually do that. Most of them would not say, we're going to deny them the right to have their own nation. But as we look at Scripture, and, and by the way, we're in that 41%, the minority, as we look at Scripture, unless you work fairly hard to be somewhat metaphorical about many of the restoration passages in the Old Testament, it becomes very clear that a straightforward, literal reading of those passages presents a future not just for saved Jews, but for saved Jews making up a saved nation named Israel. And this has been one of our two major themes in our series here in Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah 49 up through this point, God's plan for Israel and the nations. And we just spent four weeks going through Isaiah 53, where we see the exaltation, the humiliation, and the propitiation, that is the satisfaction of the wrath of God, provided by the servant, by the Messiah, by Jesus Christ. And we saw that remarkably, the heart of this section, verses 1 through 6 of Isaiah 53 it's written from the vantage point of Israel. It talks about us and we and our. And it's written in the past tense as if it's already happened, even though Isaiah penned that 700 years before Christ. And so in Isaiah 53, we see the Lord Jesus Christ presented as one who has atoned for the sins of those who would receive him. But what's the result? What's the outcome? What's the, what's the consequence? Why did the servant come? Why was that message given to the readers of Isaiah? Well, we get hints at the end of Isaiah 53. Verse 11, he will make many to be accounted righteous. Verse 12, God will give to the servant as a reward the many. And then also in verse 12, the servant has borne the sin of many. So who are the many? Well, we see the many specifically saved Israel of the future, receiving the result of atonement, the outcome of Christ's sacrifice, the consequence of God's faithfulness to them. Specifically tonight, what we see is our covenant-keeping God. That He is a, a promise-keeping, a covenant-keeping God. 
And tonight, very simply in Isaiah 54, I want to encourage your hearts. My heart's been encouraged looking at this. I want to encourage your hearts by showing you two proofs of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness to Israel. Now, there's a reason for this, because that way we can be encouraged by God's covenant-keeping faithfulness to us. So let me just give you two proofs. Proof number one, we would call the restoration of a fallen woman. The restoration of a fallen woman. In the ancient Near East, there were three ways that a woman could be disgraced in a way that that she couldn't control. Certainly, she could sin and disgrace herself. But there were three ways that were out of her control that she couldn't she couldn't uh, have any bearing on. There was a sense of helplessness, a sense of vulnerability to this. And Isaiah pictures Israel with each of these disgraces, and they're progressively more devastating. First, Isaiah pictures Israel as a barren woman. As a barren woman, we see this in verse 1, that she's not able to have children. And now in the ancient Near East, this was generally blamed on the woman. This is not out of cruelty. It's just out of the amount of medical knowledge that was available at the time. And in Israel, to not be able to have children was considered at times God's curse or God's judgment on the woman. It was a source of great pain and a source of great anguish. Why is this? Well, because a young married woman could do something for her husband that was of primary importance. He could give, she could give him sons and daughters because family was absolutely everything. Family was your future. Your, it was tied in with your land. It was tied in with your business. Family was your, your financial security. It was your retirement. Everything was family. And if a woman could not produce offspring for her husband, it jeopardized really his entire reputation. It jeopardized his entire potential success. And how had Israel become like a barren woman? Well, Israel escaped from Egypt two to three million strong with over 600,000 young men of fighting and child-producing age. In fact, Israel had a six-to-one numbers advantage over the armies of Canaan, which is why it makes no sense whatsoever that Israel was afraid of Canaan. Israel had 600,000-plus soldiers. Canaan, the whole area, had 100,000. And so their, their lack of faith is astounding. But they, they came out essentially as the next emerging empire. The God of Israel had just defeated the entire army of Pharaoh and Amenhotep II. We know in October of the year of the Red Sea, went out with a few emissaries looking for a new army and brought back 100,000 or so slaves to be a new army. Why did he suddenly need a new army? Because his old one was at the bottom of the Red Sea. And all of a sudden now, if Israel could be faithful, this little nation would literally be the next Egypt. They would be the next empire in the next couple of generations. They would rule the known world of the ancient Near East with nations bringing tribute to them. And if they would just cross the Jordan and take all of this land that God had given them and continue that faithfulness, then God would bless that. What did they do first? First, they chickened out. And God had to have them wander the wilderness an entire generation dying off. They weren't faithful. Almost immediately, even after the conquest of Canaan, began a, a slow spiraling down of 500 years, which would result, first of all, in a split kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And then the northern kingdom in 722 BC would be defeated by Assyria. The southern kingdom subsequently would be defeated and carried off by Babylon. 
Now, when Isaiah is writing, the northern kingdom has just been conquered. I mean, like a decade or two earlier. This is fresh news. And he's writing prophetically in some earlier chapters here of the coming of Babylon to to place Israel in exile. And this is an exile that would begin with with the utter destruction of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And so now, instead of Israel being the mother of a ruling empire with millions and millions of countless faithful Yahweh worshipers, now Israel's just fighting to exist, fighting to stay alive. But the barren woman could still be useful to the household. A husband might take another wife, as Elkanah did in 1 Samuel, since Hannah was not able to give him children. But the barren woman could run the affairs of the home, run the affairs of the estate, still enjoy the provision and the security of her husband. If she didn't have sons to support her later, at least she had a husband to support her now. But then Isaiah pictures Israel as going from the the frying pan to the fire, so to speak, going to an even worse situation than a barren woman. The second disgrace he pictures her, Isaiah pictures Israel not only as a barren woman, but as a widow. Verse 4 speaks of the reproach of your widowhood. A married but barren woman was still contributing to the estate, to the multi-generational family that would be living together. But a widow was, like it or not, it's not a matter of love or not, a widow was more of a liability, more of a drain on the family resources. It had nothing to do with love for her. It was just a fact. And like being barren, being widowed, especially in the prime of life, could be considered a sign of the disgrace of God, a sign of God's displeasure. And so now the, the widow who had not been able to have children, who had been barren, now she's doubly ashamed. And Isaiah compares Israel, to, Israel in exile to a widow. That There's no husband to take care of her. She has no provision. She's utterly dependent on others who don't particularly care for her. She has no place of honor. She's a second-class citizen in a foreign nation. But at least a widow has her reputation to a certain degree. She can't help it that she couldn't have children. She can't help it that her husband was no longer with her. And even if society suspects that God may have been displeased with her, they have no actual proof of that. But the third disgrace, Isaiah pictures Israel as a divorced woman. And now it's all gone. That she was found wanting in some way that her husband would end the marriage. In verse 6, Isaiah calls Israel a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. A wife who's been cast off for adultery and for immorality. So Israel, not just barren, but widowed. Not just widowed, but cast away and disgraced by her husband. What would a barren woman give anything for? Children. What would a widow give anything for? A husband. What would the disgraced, divorced woman give anything for? To have her husband back. And for Israel as a nation, because of the sacrifice of Christ to pay for all the sins of every Jew who would ever believe, Isaiah 54, following on the heels of Isaiah 53, is caused to celebrate. So how does God solve this problem of the disgraced woman? First, God solves the disgrace of barrenness. Look with me at chapter 54, verse 1. He says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. 
For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. This is a command to Israel, to the barren one, to sing, to celebrate, to, to rejoice. God's original plan for Israel, as indicated in Exodus 19, they were to be a kingdom of priests. This means they were to be a, a witness to the whole world of the love of God. That had gone completely awry. They weren't a witness to anything. They had been unfaithful. They had been disobedient. But now, even in the midst of exile, Israel is instructed to break forth into singing and to cry aloud. This is a shout of victory, a shout of joy. She has not been in labor, meaning she has not been producing generation after generation of faithful worshipers. But even though they had failed God, God would not fail them. And God promises to do more for her than even the normal married woman would receive, that the the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. How much more? Well, Abraham was told in Genesis 15, verse 5, that his children will be like the numbers of stars in the heavens. That's a lot of children. In fact, God tells Israel how to think about her offspring that those who will be gathered together, the faithful Jews from all of the ages, and then the huge influx of new converts at the end of the age, he tells them how to think. Verse 2, Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. Now, this is a word picture that any ancient citizen would immediately understand. If you're living a nomadic life, when the family was getting bigger, you got bigger cords to hold the tent up. You made more rooms, made more quarters, got more curtains, put more stakes in the ground to hold the growing accommodations up and together. Now, listen, you have to understand an ancient Near Eastern tent, you know, we, this is not something made by Coleman that you buy at Dick's Sporting Goods. This was a, this was a complex. You could have a tent that was as big as this room. And it was made up of rooms, and it was, it was a complicated um, structure. But why is the tent life so important here? Because the tent life is pictured very often in Scripture as an ideal time, as the time where everything is just right. For example, Jeremiah 2, verses 1 and 2, pictures the newness of, of a brand new young Israel living in harmony in the wilderness, ostensibly in tents with her God. Jeremiah 2, verses 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. It's a picture of being intense in a perfect, pristine, brand new wilderness with the newness of newlywed status upon them. Isaiah 16, verse 5, pictures Messiah living, quote, in the tent of David. It's an ideal time. Listen to Isaiah's picture of a future Jerusalem in Isaiah 33, verse 20. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. Amos 9, verse 11, speaks of a future day. In that day, I will raise up the booth, the tent of David, that has fallen and repair its breaches and and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And it could be 
that with both uh, Amos 9 verse 11 and Isaiah 16 5 referring to the tent of David, it could be that there is at least a veiled reference to God's keeping the Davidic covenant, that he will raise that tent again in which a descendant of David will always be on the throne. And at the end of the great tribulation and at the return of Christ, the, the world will have been emptied of most of its population and it will be emptied of all the unbelievers because they will have all been judged and executed according to Matthew 25, verse 46. And there will be entire abandoned cities in Israel, abandoned cities in other nations. What happens to them? Well, it's a good thing because there's going to be a lot of saved Jews. And so chapter 54, verse 3 says, For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. The family of God had begun with Israel and is now extending out to the nations. It'll be massive. Israel as a nation among nations and a world filled with those all who love Christ a family with whom you and I will enjoy sweet fellowship, sweet communion, and sweet togetherness. So God will solve the disgrace of barrenness. There will be a day on this earth where you can't walk around the block without running into a Jew. Second, he will solve the disgrace of widowhood. He'll solve the disgrace of widowhood. Verse four, fear not for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. You will not be ashamed. This is a word that speaks of emotional distress because of shame. You will not be confounded. It's a word that means humiliated, disgraced. You will not be disgraced. It's related to an Arabic word which means to blush, to turn red. You will no longer have reason to be ashamed. You will no longer blush. You will no longer turn red. They'll never return to the shame that they felt in Egypt as slaves when God seemed to not be with them. This is what Isaiah is referring to here when he says, you will forget the shame of your youth. They'll never return to the shame of exile and the reproach of widowhood you will remember no more. Why is this? Well, because the cure to widowhood is to receive a husband. And what a strong husband they receive. Verse 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. How big is this husband? He is the one who made you. He's the creator. He is the Lord of hosts. That the one who possesses the myriads upon myriads, the tens of thousands, the thousands of thousands of angels, the one who commands the largest army in the universe is the one taking care of you. He's the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, that He solved the problem of your sin by redeeming you, by paying for sin, by making ransom to His own holiness to get you back. And how safe will you be with this husband? Listen, in almost every era in, in human history, part of the job of a husband has been to provide physical safety to a wife. How safe will this wife be well he is the god of the whole earth meaning there are no bad guys who can get her when a widow remarries it is new life it's new hope everything is springtime and flowers and joy and song but god also solves the disgrace of the divorced israel jeremiah 3 verse 8 says that god sent israel away quote with a decree of divorce because she had played the whore. 
She had gone after other gods, but God is faithful. He is a covenant-keeping God. And so instead of the death penalty, instead of decimating and annihilating Israel and wiping them off the face of the earth, he divorced her for a time. And now in chapter 54, verse 6, For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. This is a, the grief of a wife who looks in the mirror and says, I've destroyed my life. I've destroyed my marriage because of my sin. That God will give her a spirit of deep remorse and, and abject repentance and God will call her home again. If you want to see the spirit of that repentance, read Zechariah 12 verse 10. That God will give to Israel a, a spirit of repentance, of brokenness when they look on him whom they've pierced. As a matter of fact, God makes three promises. And in essence, we might call these three remarriage vows that he makes to Israel once again. First, he promises compassion. He promises compassion. Verse 7, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. That when God gathers Israel once again, it won't just be out of some detached sense of duty. It'll be with compassion. It's a word that means a loving feeling, tender affection, deep emotion. And not just compassion, it'll be with with great compassion. This is not God with his arms crossed saying, well, I guess you can come back with some sort of resignation. This is the compassion of the father of the prodigal son who runs and who embraces his lost boy and weeps over him and celebrates over him. It is the Lord Jesus, as Zephaniah 3.17 says, who sings and dances over his people that are returned and restored. So he promises compassion. He gives a, a second remarriage vow. He promises love. He promises love. Verse 8, In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The discipline of the Lord was momentary compared to an eternity of of intense and everlasting, endless, ceaseless, perpetual, never-ending, continuous, permanent love. What does any woman who's getting married, what does she ask for? She just wants love. She wants that security of of acceptance. And in whom is this love found? It is found in Christ Jesus the Lord, from whose love they will never be separated separated. As Romans 8.39 says, literally in Greek, by the way, never be divorced from his love. God promises compassion. He promises love. He gives a third promise. He promises the end of wrath. The end of wrath. Verse 9, this is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. What was God's covenant with Noah? Well, it was that never again would God wipe out mankind with a worldwide flood and we're reminded of this covenant every time we see a rainbow. So here's the pattern that God has established. He inflicts severe judgment and then he promises that he'll never do that again. In the same pattern, he swears here, he has inflicted severe justice on Israel as a nation. 
But when he takes her back as a husband, takes back a wayward wife, he says, I will never do that again. Never again will you be in exile. Never again will I turn my back to be away from you. Never again will you be hopeless and helpless and destitute. So God promises to this wayward wife compassion and love and an end of wrath. Now why is it that God can be so certain that he will never again have to bring justice to Israel? How can he be certain about this? Well, because God is going to establish a new covenant. A new covenant with Israel. And this is described in Jeremiah 31. It's described in Ezekiel 36. A covenant in which he promises, Jeremiah 31, 34, that quote, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This covenant is one in which God can make peace with them, make peace with Israel because the sacrifice of Isaiah 53 has been made. And so we see in verse 10, for the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed. In other words, all kinds of calamity may happen, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This is a covenant of peace that's a covenant based in a once-for-all sacrifice. That's how God knows that he can take the wayward bride back and never again will he render wrath to her. Now, I don't know about you, but if God is so faithful to Israel as a three-time disgraced woman, that encourages my heart that God is faithful to me when I sin. He's faithful to me, that he'll keep me unto the day of my completed transformation in Christ, that the work that he began in me, he will finish it, that when Jesus promised that he won't lose one that he has in his hand, when he promised that the Father won't lose one that he has in his hand, I can look to Israel and say, if God can keep them, he can keep me. So the first proof of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness to Israel so that we can be encouraged by his covenant-keeping faithfulness, the restoration of a fallen woman. But he gives a second proof. We would call this the restoration of a fallen city. The restoration of a fallen city. And now God uses a poetic device to address Jerusalem as if Jerusalem is a person. Jerusalem is the capital city of the Bible. It's the capital city of God's redemptive plan. And it will be the capital city of Jesus Christ when he reigns on earth. And so comfort to Jerusalem is very symbolic of God's comfort and is working out his plan for all of Israel. Now, by the time the, the exiles in Babylon are reading Isaiah 54, this will make perfect sense to them. Jerusalem will have fallen. Verse 11 calls Jerusalem the afflicted one, the storm-tossed one, the not-comforted one. Verse 14, she is the oppressed one. She is the one in terror. Verse 15, she's the one filled with strife. And if you've been at Grace for any amount of time, you know the history of Jerusalem that in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, this fierce Chaldean warrior who was ruling the Babylonian Empire, he destroyed Jerusalem. He, he broke down the walls. He tore the temple down completely. He broke the city apart, stone by stone. He destroyed all the farmland, making it unusable. He destroyed all the orchards. He cut down trees. He took all of the, the produce. He slaughtered all of the farm animals. He slaughtered or captured all of the Jews. His point was not to just conquer. His point was to render that land unusable. And he did that. 
But God says to Jerusalem, your day is coming once again. It can be very easy for us to look for super spiritual meanings, to overly uh, use metaphor when we think of various Old Testament passages. And so before we're quick to make what's going to be written here uh, about the city simply symbolic or metaphorical concerning God's work of salvation to Israel, I think it's important to remind ourselves of the massive theme of the city in Isaiah. At the very beginning of Isaiah, when the prophet is giving hope to a future Israel, he says in chapter 1, verse 26, Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4, describes the future Jerusalem, in this case, the millennial kingdom Jerusalem, as the highest of the mountains, the city where the law of God goes forth, the city where Messiah judges and rules the nations. This is important. You get to Isaiah chapter 4, it speaks of a cleansed and perfected city that contains God himself. Chapter 4 verse 5, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion, that is Jerusalem, and over her assemblies, see if this sounds familiar, a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a canopy. This is the glory, the visible glory of God in Jerusalem. Isaiah 12, 1 through 6 speaks of the future Jerusalem as a city of great joy. Isaiah 25, 1 through 9 speaks of Jerusalem as a stronghold of peace. And and how has that come about? Well, it says it'll be a city with rich food and fine wine and peace and prosperity. Isaiah 35, verse 10 speaks of Jerusalem, the redeemed city. 52, verse 1, the purified city. 66, 10 through 14, it's the peaceful and the comforted city. In fact, 66 verse 12, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. So it becomes very difficult to just make the city of Jerusalem a metaphor or a symbol because Isaiah sure doesn't do that. So the redemption of Israel is tied inextricably with the capital city of Israel, that is Jerusalem. Now, the question we would have to consider is that is this section we're about to look at speaking of Jerusalem during the millennial reign of Christ or is it looking farther ahead to new Jerusalem as the final redeemed creation? Well, it has characteristics of both. And so it presents a little bit of a challenge to us. It has characteristics of new Jerusalem with stunning beauty and it has characteristics of a reconstructed messianic age Jerusalem because it's being protected from evil, which will still be in the world, even when Christ reigns, since the survivors of the Great Tribulation will continue to have sinful children. So is it the millennial kingdom Jerusalem, or is it the new Jerusalem in the final state? The text doesn't really make that super clear for us, and so we just look forward to clarification on that in the future. But in either case, it is a true and a living and a real symbol of hope for the future nation of Israel. So we'll just let the text speak for itself and, and take whatever details are given here. But according to this text, what will the restored city be like? First, it will be beautiful. It will be beautiful. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, Behold, I will set your stones in antinomy. 
and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. This is an interesting phrase. I know that you use the word antinomy every day. I will set your stones in antinomy. What is this? Antinomy literally means black eye paint. It is eyeliner or eyeshadow. It's probably speaking of something like eyeliner. This is proof that God has ordained makeup in the Bible. It's here. But what is eyeliner used for? It's used to highlight the eyes by putting a dark border around them. Antinomy is something in which the stones of the city are set in. What do you set stones in? You set it in mortar. And so what is this speaking of? It's speaking of dark or black mortar, which highlights the beauty of the masonry. This is a stunning look. If you've ever seen masonry where the, the mortar is dark, it's a gorgeous look. It's beautiful. It's stunning. And in the foundation will be set sapphires. And in the pinnacles or the towers are set agate, that's, that's rubies. And carbuncle, that's red garnet. And precious stones, literally sparkling jewels. That sounds very New Jerusalem-like if you read Revelation 21 with the glorious description of that gorgeous city. But it's not out of the realm of possibility that the Messianic Age kingdom will feature a glorious Jerusalem with that sort of wealth and that sort of beauty. We already know from Zechariah 14 that every year all the kingdoms of the earth will bring their wealth to Jerusalem just in the millennial kingdom. That's not even to say in the new Jerusalem. And so that sort of wealth would be available. In fact, if we just read the building plan for the tabernacle, the traveling tent worship center in Exodus 36, you don't have to turn there, But just listen to how God cared about the place where he would be worshipped, about the center of his presence, the place where people would meet with God. All of the people contributed to this project. It had curtains. Remember, this is just the tent that they travel with. It had curtains of finely twined linen, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns with angels woven into it in tapestry. It had curtain clasps that were made of gold. They had a goat's hair tent covering connected by bronze clasps. They had frames of of the tabernacle made of acacia wood with silver bases and overlaid with gold. And I could go on and on with this design that, that the place where we meet with God matters to God. And Jerusalem will be no exception. It will be stunningly beautiful. What else will Jerusalem be like? Second, it will be pure. It will be pure. Verse 13, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. All your children, in verse 13, is probably speaking of everyone who lives there. This is Jerusalem's children. Now, if this is the millennial Jerusalem, this will also include actual children also. But who will teach them? This is phenomenal. The Lord himself, the risen and reigning and present Savior, If you wish that you could have heard the Sermon on the Mount, just wait. You'll probably get to hear not only the Sermon on the Mount repeated, but but all the commentary that goes with it. Let me explain to you what this really means. And the result of this incredible basking in the knowledge of God will be peace. It'll be great peace. And the very establishment, the foundation of the city is righteousness, that that's the norm. That's what's normal. This goes even further than just simply saying that those in Jerusalem will be taught by the Lord. 
Jesus quoted this passage to proclaim that only those that are drawn by the Father will receive salvation. He quoted this in John 6, beginning in verse 44. He says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So what is this saying in Isaiah? That these are people who have been drawn by God. They have been taught by God to believe what? To believe the gospel. In other words, everyone in the city is saved. It is a pure city in which all love the Lord. All are walking in newness of life with him. You know, I think that if in Bakersfield, California, the message went out that suddenly every single person here was a true and genuine believer in Jesus Christ, I think they would literally be dancing in the streets. I think it would be such an amazing time that you could suddenly just let your children run free, that you could do anything and be free because there's no more danger. There's another quality of the city. Third, it will be protected. It will be protected. Verse 14, you shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear and from from terror for it shall not come upon you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Just like the armies of Sennacherib in Assyria in the 8th century smashed and and decimated the city of Lachish, which Lachish was the last stronghold between uh, them and Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem literally could go to the wall and they could watch an army coming miles down the road, 200,000 men, 185,000 or so, but God would save them. A century and a half later, people could see the Babylonian army of Nebuchadnezzar coming this time because of God's indignation and his righteous wrath against them. God would not save Israel. He would not save Jerusalem. The gates would be breached. Thousands would die at the point of the sword, the point of the spear. And the unbelievable terror of being under siege, that must have been indescribable to know that you're simply waiting for somebody to break down your door and to plunge a sword into your body. How terrifying that is. But God is promising in verse 14, never again. Never again will you go through that. And in verse 15, God promises that his discipline is done. That if anyone stirs up trouble, this is not coming, God coming against Israel once again. And his protection is guaranteed that whoever stirs up strife, they will be dealt with. I tend to think this as referring to the millennial kingdom, Jerusalem. And he says that God has sovereignly used other nations to discipline Israel. Verse 16, behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravenger to destroy, but no more. Protection is guaranteed. No more Assyria, no more Babylon, no more Egypt, no more Moabites coming against them, no more Philistines, no more Ammonites, none of that. The city will be beautiful. It'll be pure. It'll be protected. But I think most importantly, the city will be justified. It'll be justified. God continues personifying Jerusalem, speaking to her as a person and says in verse 17, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Now, this first phrase, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. Generally speaking, our our Christian 
theology says, well, that's a, that's a prayer that we pray to ask for God's protection on us and that's worthy and that's reasonable. It can be taken to go with verse 16 that God will provide protection. But the immediate context seems to be looking ahead, not behind. It's looking ahead at an accompanying statement. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and parallel statement, you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. To rise in judgment. This is a legal phrase in Hebrew. It's a specific technical phrase that means to accuse somebody officially. It means to take them to court, to badger someone, to reproach someone. And Jerusalem itself as a city is very familiar with this dynamic. It happened almost immediately upon Israel's return from exile, which by the way is why this cannot be referring just to simply Israel or Jerusalem being repopulated after the exile. Because this wasn't the case. After they returned home, almost immediately they had problems. When Nehemiah was overseeing the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, the governor of the northern province of Samaria, a man by the name of Sanballat, he's a member of this emerging new people called Samaritans. And he, like many people today, they, they questioned Israel's right to even exist as a nation. So what did he do? Well, first, he ridiculed Israel. Nehemiah 2.19 says he jeered at us and despised us. That didn't work. So he threatened violence. Nehemiah 4 records that Sanballat put together a small army to stop the construction of the wall. But the plot was found out, and so Nehemiah put half the workers on construction, and the other half, he gave them swords and spears and armed them for battle, and the Lord protected them. So ridicule didn't work. He threatened violence. That didn't work. Sanballat tried treachery. Nehemiah chapter 6 tells of an assassination plot against Nehemiah. Nehemiah found out about it. Didn't go. But what was his biggest weapon? He tried false accusation. He started a rumor that Jerusalem was conspiring to rebel against Persia. Well, how did the Lord help them? Well, he gave a phenomenal victory. Nehemiah 6, beginning in verse 15, says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. In other words, the accusations did not stick. The, the weapon that can no longer be fashioned against Jerusalem is the false accusation that she does not have the right to exist. Could I exhort you that before you find yourself in the camp of those who believe that Israel no longer will exist as a nation to reconsider verse 17? Because verse 17 says the opposite. That Jerusalem will be free of accusation. Now how is this possible? Well, the end of the chapter says this. Verse 17, beginning in the middle of it, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. How is this possible? Remember we said that the city will be justified. This word translated vindication, their vindication is from me. It's used 187 times, 157 times rather in the Old Testament. It's only translated vindication four times. The esteemed Dr. Alec Mautier, he says of this translation in verse 17, quote, vindication is an absurd translation. Why? Because this is the classic word that 153 times in the Old Testament is simply translated righteousness. 
Now, vindication makes sense. But the way the word is most often translated, I think, makes a little bit more sense as righteousness. Yes, no accusation formed against Jerusalem will, will prosper against her saved people. They'll stand because their vindication is from the Lord. That's true. But even more, no accusation formed against Jerusalem, against her saved people will stand because their righteousness is from God. That makes more sense. She possesses the holiness, the purity, the righteousness, and is as clean and unsullied as God himself. That means no accusation can stick. And this is proof of the new covenant nature of God's people of Israel. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Can I put it this way? The theology of the Bible is so consistent with itself. Isaiah says it this way. There is now no judgment against those who have trusted the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And the Apostle Paul says it this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so in the same way, when you're tempted to be racked with false guilt, when you're tempted to believe that your former sins are still held against you, you also can say, no weapon fashioned against me shall succeed. No accusation will stick. No judgment will stick. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Why? Because like a restored Jerusalem, in the eyes of God, you are beautiful, you are pure, you are protected, and you are justified. The restoration of a fallen woman, the restoration of a fallen city, I think for, for me and I hope for you, that gives great, great confidence that when Jesus said in John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, that gives me hope. And that if we believe him, then his promise extends to us that in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now you may be skeptical and you may say, well, I still don't believe that God is going to restore Israel. That's fine because you will. You will believe that. Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is Israel, in the kingdom of heaven. So it's okay if you don't believe it now. Someday there will be a giant map posted everywhere on earth and the center of the earth will be Israel. Who would not want to be part of that glorious future? Now the question is, how can you be part of that glorious future? Well, God makes sure that you're going to know Isaiah 53, we have the suffering servant who pays the way. Isaiah 54, the promise of restoration. And God's going to make sure how you, that you know how you can be a part because he's going to issue a personal invitation. And that is Isaiah 55, which we'll look at Friday evening, Good Friday. I hope you will join us for that. Our Father, we thank you for this text which crescendos and grows and, and, and comes to this climactic point where now in Isaiah 55, the servant himself will speak. And the servant who said when he was on earth, 
Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That the servant himself will say, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And so, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to Israel. We thank you for your faithfulness to that fallen woman, to that fallen city. Because we are that fallen woman, we are that fallen city. And we needed hope of restoration. We need to know that the faith that we've had in you works. We need to know that the faith we have in you will carry us over that awful moment when we breathe our last on this earth, when we are utterly helpless, and when we step out into the darkness of eternity, that there will be somebody there to catch us. And so we must have a covenant-keeping God. And you are a covenant-keeping God and this incredible testimony overwhelming massive evidence of your faithfulness gives us assurance, gives us certainty that we can face eternity with a smile, that we can face our own mortality with a laugh, that we can sneer at death because it has been defeated. All because of the wonderful suffering servant of Isaiah 53, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray tonight. Amen.